Our message is entitled, Path to the Throne of God. We're going to find out how we can be ready to see our Lord face to face. So I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to our first opening verse, found in the book of Proverbs chapter 4, and notice with me in verse 18. In this passage, the wise man Solomon illustrates and contrasts for us Two different and distinctive pathways. Notice what the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 4, this is the foundational scripture for our study this morning. And by the way, friends, every single scripture and every statement that is made in this presentation, it's all connected together. So please listen very carefully. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. The Bible tells us. Proverbs 4 and verse 18. If you're there... And if you're ready to study the Bible, would you please say amen? Amen. The Bible says, But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness, and they know not at what they stumble. Here we find the wise men describing two pathways. The path of the just And the way of the wicked. And every single one of us in this room and everyone in the world is walking on one of these two pathways. There's no third path. There's no neutral ground, friends. Today, we're either walking the path of the just or the way of the wicked. The question is, which path are you walking on right now? The Bible tells us that the path of the just is like a shining light. A light that shines more and more brighter and brighter, clearer and clearer, and this path leads to the perfect day. Whereas the way of the wicked is a dark path, and those who walk in and stumble, and they know not what causes them to stumble because this way is a way of darkness. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I want to walk on the path of the just. Amen? So we want to look into this path this morning and find out what is this path anyway? And what does it mean to walk upon it? Well, friends, let's first identify who walks on the path. It says it's the path of the just. And that word just literally means to be made right. It means to be justified. Justified means justified, never sinned before. And the only way we can be made right in the eyes of God is through the blood of Jesus. So this is the path of those who are who have been washed in the fountain of Jesus' blood. But we also know, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, that the just shall live by faith. So this is a path of those who are seeking to walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, this is a path of faith. It's not a literal path, but it's a journey of faith. A path, brothers and sisters, implies that there is movement. Isn't that right? from one place to another. So this shows that our faith must continually be on the move, never stagnant, never complacent, never in the same place, because only as we move forward, upward and onward on the path, will the light begin to shine more and more, brighter and brighter, unto the perfect day. In other words, God is not wanting us to be lukewarm, amen? Staying in the same place, stagnant in our faith. No, friends, 
our faith should continue to be growing stronger and stronger and brighter and brighter as long as we move forward. And friends, as we do, the light gets clearer and clearer. In other words, this path of faith is a path of revelation. It is a path of what? In other words, as we move forward, God removes each layer of darkness that separates us from him and the light of the glory of God, the truth and the faith of Jesus becomes clearer and clearer as, we, as long as we keep moving forward in this path. And the Bible tells us that the path leads to the perfect day. The what day? And friends, the perfect day is the time of perfect clarity. It's the day in which we see the light in all of its fullness without any layer of darkness separating us from the light. And so what exactly is and when is this perfect day? Oh, friends, in order to find out what the perfect day is, we first must define what the light is. And so notice how the Bible defines the light in the book of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. Please write it down. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us, This is the message which we have heard of him and declare, declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the Bible tells us that God is light. As we move forward in the path of the just, the path of faith, the light of who God is becomes clearer and clearer to us. And notice what specifically about God is so bright like a light. Notice now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. The Bible says, For God who commanded the what? Light to shine out of darkness has shined where? In our hearts. To give the light. But what is the light? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us clearly in this passage that the light represents the knowledge of the glory or the character of God. In other words, as we continue to move forward in our faith, we will receive fresh revelations of who God is. His wonderful and beautiful character will become clearer and clearer to us. And the Bible says that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the what again? The face of Jesus Christ. But the Bible says that no one can see God's face and live. It's not talking about the literal face so much. But what do we have in our possession that reveals to us the knowledge of who God is. What do we have that reveals the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? We have the Bible. Can you say amen? And friends, the Bible is God's Facebook. Isn't that right? Because when you read the Bible, you're looking into the knowledge of the glory of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, when you read the Bible, you're looking upon the Facebook of God. You see who God is. And by the way, when you read the Bible, you read about God's update statuses. You find out where Jesus is right now and what Jesus is doing. When you look into the Facebook of God, you see pictures of who he is. You get to know the friends of God, the things that God likes and the things that he does not like. Friends, we need to spend more time looking into the Facebook of God instead of our own Facebook accounts. Can you say amen? Because it's this Facebook that's going to lead us to the throne of God. And so we see that the light that is shining on the path of the just is simply the knowledge. It is the what? Or the understanding of who God is, His glorious character for us. And so if the light is the knowledge of who God is, then the perfect day is the day that we see our God face to face. It's the day when that which is perfect is come, and that which is in part shall be done away with. In other words, the perfect day that the path leads to is none other than resurrection morning. 
It's the day that Jesus comes again. Oh, friends, do you realize that we're on a path that leads to seeing God face to face? A path that leads to the very throne of God. And friends, it's one thing to be on the path today, but it's a totally different thing to make it to the end of the path because Jesus said, he that endures to the end are going to be saved. You see, I believe that all of us... Perhaps uh, most of us, if not all of us, are all at least standing on the path right now. Friends, you're on the path, but God wants us to move forward in faith so that we can be ready for the end. Can you say amen? And if we want to make it to the end, by the way, how many of you want to make it to the end? And if we want to make it to the end, we must pray this prayer in the book of Psalms 25 in verse 4 and 5. The Bible tells us, show me thy ways, O Lord. Let's read it together. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. So friends, if we want to make it to the end of the path, then we first must understand what the path is. And so we're praying, Lord, show me your way. Teach me this path. Help me to understand the way that I should walk so that I can be ready to see you face to face. And friends, when we ask God, Lord, show me your way, your pathway, here's the answer. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, here's the answer of God. We're praying, Lord, show me your way. And notice the answer. He has shown thee, O man. Show me your way, Lord. Okay. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do what? Justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Friends, To walk humbly with God implies that there is a path that you're walking upon. Isn't that right? And as we walk humbly with our God on the path of the just, the path of faith, in this path, God actually teaches us to do justly and to love mercy. And the reason why is because this pathway that leads to the perfect day, the throne of God, is a path of justice and mercy. Because this path actually leads us, listen, friends, It leads us to a place where the justice and the mercy of God kiss each other. It is a path that teaches us about the character of God. And friends, God's character is mercy and justice, two sides of the same coin. And this is what the path teaches us. So Lord, show me your way. And he shows us the just and the merciful path. In fact, notice how else the Bible describes the path of faith. In Isaiah 35 and verse 8, the Bible says, and on high way shall be there. What kind of way? Oh, friends, God's way is a lot higher than the low ways of the world. Can you say amen? It is a highway, not just a highway, it says, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. So this path that is like a shining light that leads to the perfect day, it's a highway, but it's also a holy way because this pathway leads to a most holy place where the justice and the mercy of God kiss and embrace. Friends, I want to walk this path. How about you? It's a highway. It's a holy way. And where do we see this pathway illustrated for us most clearly and most fully? Where do we see who is the way, friends? Back to God. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, write it down. Jesus said unto him, I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except but by me and so jesus said i am the path i am the way that leads humanity back to god and so when you look upon jesus you see the way of holiness you see the just and the merciful path 
You see, in the life and death of Jesus Christ, the way to God, the truth about God, because he embodies the very life of God in the flesh. Can you say amen? Jesus is the way. But before Jesus came in the flesh, God wanted those who live in the Old Testament to understand the pathway as well. Can you say amen? And so before Jesus came, God illustrated this path of life, this path of faith, in another way. He illustrated to us how. Notice Psalm 77 and verse 13. The Bible says, Thy way, O God, is where? In the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So before Jesus would come in the flesh, God taught humanity about this path of faith in the sanctuary. The Bible says that the way of God or the path of God is right there in the sanctuary. And friends, it's interesting. When you look upon this sanctuary, you actually see a literal path that leads to a most holy place. This pathway, brother, this sanctuary teaches us about the plan of salvation through types and symbols. It points us to Jesus. Remember Jesus said, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and three days I'll raise it up. You see, Christ was the embodiment of this sanctuary service. And how many of you love the sanctuary message? Friends, if you don't love it, then that just shows you don't know anything about it. (laughs) Because if you knew about this message, oh, friends, it is so beautiful. It points us to Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you a few things we see in the sanctuary. The sanctuary was God's visual aid to teach man about the plan of salvation through types and symbols. And it's all about Jesus and his master plan for humanity. You see, in Old Testament times, if we wanted to be forgiven, forgiveness and atonement was found in the sanctuary. That's where salvation was realized. And so this is what happened. The sanctuary had three main parts to it. How many? Three main parts. The first part was the outer court. The second was the holy place. The third was the most holy place. And these three parts of the sanctuary represents the three phases of the Christian salvation experience. In the first part, the outer court, there were only two articles of furniture. How many? As the sinner entered into the outer court, entering into the gates, into the outer court, the first things his eyes laid upon, the first piece of furniture, was the altar of sacrifice. Now, friends, that altar represents Jesus' cross. Because it was there that the Lamb's blood was shed, and it was consumed by the fire. And friends, that altar represents the cross, and how Jesus would shed his blood and be consumed by the fires of our sin for us. And that was the first thing the sinner saw. Friends, I'm so grateful that when we begin the path of faith, we don't start so much with the law and the holiness of God. We start at the foot of Calvary's cross. Can you say amen? God meets us right there at the altar, and that's where the blood is shed and applied to our lives. But then after the altar, after the cross, there's still more of the path to walk on, isn't there? Do you see it? You see, most Christian churches have stopped right there at the altar. They preach about the cross, the grace and the love of God, which is a good thing, but they don't realize that there's more of the path. There's more to it than just that, friends. God wants to bring us even further. And so after the altar of sacrifice was a laver, a a brazen uh, basin that was called the laver, filled with water. It's there that the priest would wash himself before going into the holy place. And that laver represents the second part. After we experience the cross, it represents baptism. It represents what? You see, when we have accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our hearts, the next logical step is the outward expression of baptism 
that symbolizes the inward experience of dying to self and living to Christ. And so we find the, the altar of sacrifice, the cross of Jesus, then the labor representing baptism. And it's in the first part of the sanctuary in the outer court where we experience the first phase of salvation, which is what we call justification. What do we call it? <clears throat> And justification has nothing to do with our behavior or our works. It has everything to do with the spilt blood of Jesus and the rite of baptism. This is where we're forgiven. It's the work of a very instant when we believe in the blood and the waters of baptism. Can you say amen? So it's in the outer court that we are justified, justified, never sinned before. We're completely cleansed and forgiven. But then there is a second part of the sanctuary itself. And that was the holy place. It was called the what place? And in the holy place, there were three articles of furniture. How many? On the side of the north was the table of showbread, representing Jesus, the bread of life, but also how that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That table of showbread represents Bible study. And opposite to that was the golden candlestick filled with oil that caused the fire to burn brightly. And that candlestick also represents Jesus, the light of the world, but also how God is calling us to be the light of the world as a witness for him. The candlestick represents witnessing and evangelizing, evangelism, letting our light shine before men. And friends, the only way we can let the light shine is if we're on fire. And the only way we can be on fire for Christ is if we're filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit that caused the fire to burn brightly for him. And friends, not only will people see the glory of God on our countenance and in our life, but they also feel the warmth of Christian love coming from us. Can you say amen? You see, the candlestick is just opposite to the table of showbread. You know why? Because you can't have one without the other. You can't just eat the word of God and not share the word of God. Can you say amen? And if you're trying to witness without eating the word of God, what are you witnessing of? You're just entertaining people, making people feel good about themselves. You see, the table of showbread is the substance that makes our witnessing, our light, effective in the world. Can you say amen? And so we must study the word of God and share the word of God at the same time. Because if all we do is eat the word of God, we become spiritual obese. We're just keeping it to ourselves. And friends, we can't share the Word of God unless we eat it. When we eat the Word of God, it's then we'll have some spiritual calories to burn brightly for Him. Can you say amen? And so Bible study and witnessing go hand in hand. And then you have the third article of furniture in the holy place. It was the altar of incense just before the veil. And that altar of incense represents prayer ascending to heaven mingled with the sweet incense of the righteousness of Christ because our prayers by themselves stink, friends. And that's why Jesus said when we pray, we need to pray in his name. Can you say amen? And that's more than just saying his name. That means praying in his character through his merits. You see, it is the life of Christ, the incense of Christ's righteousness that makes our prayers a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. And so we find in the second part of the sanctuary, in the holy place, we find prayer, Bible study, and witnessing. And friends, these three things are things that we need to do every single day. And by the way, the priest would go into the holy place every day. It was a daily service. And as we do this every single day, it's only then that we experience the second phase of the salvation experience. After justification, now in the holy place, we experience sanctification. What word was that? And the word sanctification means to set apart for a holy use. As we pray, 
study the Bible, and witness. We're becoming sanctified. God is making us and recreating us into his holiness. This is not the work of an instant. This is a work of a lifetime. As we do this day by day, the Lord changes us and transforms us into his own beautiful character. Can you say amen? And so don't just stop at the altar, friends. Go into the holy place. Study the Bible. Pray and witness. Do this every single day, and the Lord Jesus will sanctify us. And then we find the third part of the sanctuary, which is the most holy place. And in the the most holy place, there was only one article of furniture. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a chest-like piece of furniture overlaid with gold on the inside and on the outside. On the inside, it contained the Ten Commandments, the holy law of God. Just above the Ten Commandments was a solid slab of gold. It was called the mercy seat because on the mercy seat sat the Shekinah glory, which was the visible manifestation of the glory of God between the two angels. And friends, it it was in that place that God's throne was. It was in the most holy place where the justice of God's law was revealed, but also the mercy seat, the mercy of God was given. That's the place where justice and mercy kiss each other and so when we say lord show me your way he shows us to do justly and to love mercy and where does he teach this in the most holy place in other words friends it's in the most holy place where we have the clearest view of the light of the knowledge of the glory of god and as we go into the most holy place by faith it's then we experience the third phase of salvation and that is what we call glorification what is it called It's the time that we are glorified. We are made at one with God. It's the time where Jesus blots out our sins completely. I and you and you and me, Jesus says, we're glorified in Jesus Christ. It's the place where God writes his holy law in our hearts and minds where the new covenant promise is realized and experienced. It's the place where we sit with Jesus on his throne as an overcomer, just as Christ overcame and sat down with his father on his throne throne that's glorification now friends let me break it down the first part of the sanctuary the outer court that's the place where we have listen where we have been saved past tense from the penalty of sin we have what been saved from the penalty of sin how by the blood of the lamb and by the waters of baptism we've been saved from the penalty of sin which is death but in the holy place that's where we are being saved present tense from the power of sin. As we study the Bible, pray and witness, God is saving us in the process of saving us from the power of sin in our lives as we gain victory through Bible study, prayer, and witnessing. Are you with me, yes or no? And then in the third part of the sanctuary, the most holy place, that's the place where we will be saved, future tense, from the very presence of sin as Jesus blots it out from the sanctuary and comes back to take us to our heavenly mansion. Can you say amen? And so we see the way of God is found in this sanctuary. There's a path, brothers and sisters. And by the way, the sanctuary not only teaches us about the true way of salvation, but it teaches us about many other doctrines. It actually teaches us about health as well. Because remember in the New Testament, the Bible says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should not defile the temple. Friends, listen. In the outer court of the sanctuary, it was forbidden for any unclean animals to enter into that sanctuary. If any unclean animals were sacrificed on that altar, it would have defiled the temple. God does not want us to bring any unclean animals in this temple. Can you say amen? You see, in the outer court, only clean animals were forbidden to enter. What kind of animals? Clean. 
only clean. But friends, I want you to notice, as you continue to move forward in the path, the diet begins to change. Because in the holy place, no animals were permitted. No animals, only the bread and the oil was in the holy place. You see, the diet is beginning to change. And then when you go into the most holy place, you find the Edenic diet, the golden pot of manna. That's some complex carbohydrates, some grains. And then you have the Aaron's rod that budded almonds. Friends, almonds, we say it's a, it's a nut, but it's also a fruit. Friends, in the most holy place, we find fruits, nuts, and grains. God's original diet at the throne. And so the question is, where are you in the sanctuary when it comes to your diet? Wherever you are, God says, let's move forward. Can he say amen? Well, some people didn't say amen on that one, but that's all right. <laughs> now, friends, when you think about the sanctuary, there's a lot more we can say about it. But I want you to, I want you to notice, where does the light shine the brightest in the path of the sanctuary? Where's the light shining the brightest? In the which place? in the most holy place. And friends, did you notice, it's interesting, that the farther away you get from the most holy place is the farther away you get from the light. And the farther away you get from the light, the darker it becomes. But question, where does God want us to be in relation to the sanctuary? Does he want us to be far away from him? Where does God want us to be? In which place? in the most holy place, in his very presence. Can you say amen? And friends, when you read the Bible and study it, you'll notice that when God first created man, man began in the most holy place in relation to the sanctuary. You see, the Garden of Eden was the most holy place because there was no sin there. And God was able to find face-to-face communion and fellowship with his children without any layer of darkness separating. In other words, Adam and Eve were able to dwell in the presence of the Shekinah glory. This is where God wanted us to remain, friends, in his presence. And notice the experience of Adam and Eve in the presence of, of God. In Genesis 2, 25, it says, And they were both what? Naked the man and his wife, and were not. Friends, they were naked in the presence of God, but there was no shame in that nakedness. And the question is why? Because there was no sin. You see, brothers and sisters, sin is what brings guilt and shame. But they were naked without any shame. And uh, another reason is because while they were naked in a very real way, at the very same time, they were also clothed in a very real way. Do you know what they were clothed with? They were clothed with the light of the glory of God. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. Notice what it says in the book of Psalms 8 verse 5. Please write it down. It says, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with what? Friends, when God made us, the Bible says he crowned us with glory and honor. But whose glory? The glory of God and the honor of God. Man at his creation was covered and crowned with the glory of God. It's a glory of light. In fact, notice in Psalms 104, verse 1 and 2, it says, O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with what? Honor and majesty, who covers thyself with light as with a... 
So the Bible says that God is covered and clothed with a garment of light. And when God made man, he made him in his own image, which shows very clearly that from the beginning, man was, cl- was naked of artificial garments, but he was clothed with the garment of light, which represents the glory of God. In other words, they began where the light was shining the brightest in the very presence of God. The Garden of Eden was a most holy garden. This was God's original desire for the human race. In the presence of God, naked, but no shame in that nakedness. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Amen. But friends, we know that this perfect relationship didn't last very long. Bible tells us in the third chapter of Genesis that the tempter came and told lies about the character of God, the glory of God. And as a result of listening to the lies of, of Lucifer, the seducements of the serpent, the distractions of the devil, we find that Adam and Eve broke God's law and joined Lucifer in rebellion against God. And friends, what happened to the glorious light that enshrouded them when they sinned? Notice what happened. They were cut off and cast out into the darkness. The Bible says in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, but your iniquities have done what? Separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Because of sin, man could no longer find face-to-face fellowship with his maker. Sin had made man unfit to dwell in the presence of the Shekinah glory. Even as God comes to investigate, Adam and Eve begin to feel very uncomfortable. They begin to hide from the presence of God. You see, the light of the glory of God was overwhelming to them. Why? Because sin has caused the light to go out in darkness. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. Well, I thought that they were naked before. What does it mean that it says that they knew that they were naked and now they have shame? Why? Because that light that enshrouded them departed. They were cut off from the source of light. And now Adam and Eve and the human race are cast out into the darkness. And now now there is shame in that nakedness. The glory of God departs. And ever since then, Mankind has been living in the night of separation from God. We have been living in a time of gross darkness. Now, friends, think about it. If the light represents the knowledge of who God is, then darkness, which is the opposite, would represent what? The ignorance or not knowing really who God is. But I'm thankful that God did not leave us in the darkness. The Lord came and provided coats of skin to cover the nakedness of our first parents, but even though they were forgiven of their sin, Bible says that God evicted them from the Garden of Eden, and friends, this was not an act of judgment. It was an act of mercy to expel man from the Garden of Eden. Do you know why? Because if man would have partaken of that tree of life, they would have been immortal sinners, and so God was trying to protect them from being in the sinful condition throughout the ceaseless ages. Not only that, But if they were to remain in the presence of God, eventually they would have been consumed by the glory of God. And so this was not an act of judgment. It was an act of mercy because the Bible says it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. Can you say amen? You know, some people say, if God is real, let me just see him right now. Let him reveal himself to me. If God is real, I will see it. I'll believe it when I see it. And you know, thank the Lord that God does not answer that prayer. (laughs) Because if God would answer that prayer and just revealed himself to us physically, what would happen? 
we would be consumed by the sin of our lives. The presence of God would be a consuming fire towards the sin, and we would be destroyed with that sin. And so now they're evicted eastward from the Garden of Eden. You can read that in Genesis 3, verse 24. And so now where is man in relation to the sanctuary? Where is man now? We began where? Oh, friends, help me out this morning. We began in the most holy place. But now we can no longer dwell in the presence of the light. So where is man in the sanctuary? We are all the way out here in the dark. Out there, far away from the light. And by the way, friends, it's interesting. This was the eastern gate. Mankind is cast out into the darkness. But God wants us to live in the light. But God has a problem. His problem is this. How would God bring man back into the most holy place without man being consumed by the power of his presence? You see, God's problem is this. How would he save the sinner without saving the sin? And how is he going to destroy the sin without destroying the sinner? The only way to do do this is to separate the sin from the sinner. But how would God do this? How would he bring us back into the most? What is the solution to the problem of sin? Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there is no other. Jesus is the way. What way? The way back to the most holy place. He is the way back into the Shekinah glory. The way back to the throne of God. As I now notice, Jesus would come to separate sin from the sinner. And notice in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, a messianic prophecy concerning the first coming of Jesus. The Bible says, but unto you that fear my name, shall the son of righteousness, what? Arise with healing in his wings. The Bible likens the first coming of Jesus to the sunrise. And as the sun rises from the east, gradually dispelling the darkness of the night, so too when Jesus would come into the world, he would not come in all of his glory, but rather he would hide his glory in human flesh. The light of the universe would step down into the darkness of our lives. And friends, the reason for this, because friends, when you think about it, What happens if you're in darkness? You fall asleep in the darkness. And then someone comes in and turns on the light. How do you feel? How do you respond? You start to yell, isn't that right? Turn off the light. And friends, what's what's worse than that is sleeping when the light is on. Isn't that right? Some of us are sleeping right now while the light is on. God have mercy upon us. If someone is sleeping next to you, shake them. Amen? Say, my brother, my sister, you don't want to miss this. (laughs) You see, when your eyes are accustomed to the darkness and someone turns on the light in all of its fullness, it's blinding. Isn't that right? It's overwhelming. You want to turn and hide from it. And so instead of God coming in all of his glory, he would come and hide the glory of his character in human flesh. And he would come as the sunrise gradually getting brighter and brighter and clearer and clearer to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in healing doses so that our eyes might be able to adjust to seeing the light. And notice how his coming is described in the book of John chapter 1. Please turn there with me. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, it describes the first coming of Jesus to the light coming into the world. Notice what the Bible says, John chapter 1. 
And verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the what? Light of men. You see, the life of God was revealed in the life of Christ. We have a high priest up in heaven. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. He's our defender before the Father. that Jesus not only died for me but he ever lives for me 
the sanctuary above. He's doing a special cleansing work for us. We can't go wrong following Jesus. His grace is sufficient for all our trials, all of our weaknesses. He lives for us, and He's coming again for us.